At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. My name is David Patton. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to welcome you this morning as we celebrate the triumphal entry of our King Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as we celebrate this Palm Sunday. Today, all over the world, Christians are celebrating. They're likely palm branches that are lining the aisles, little children walking in procession in the sanctuary or maybe a choir singing, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Either way, this is a day of celebration for the church. It's a day where we see Jesus being hailed and praised as the conquering king, as a warrior, as a hero. And it's also a day of unmet expectations for the Jewish people as their Jesus did not fulfill their hopes and dreams as they had wished. And I'll go out on a limb and say that most everyone in this room knows what it feels like to have unmet expectations. Unmet expectations occur when we build up a person or a situation or an outcome in our minds to be greater or more grandiose than they are in reality. Essentially, you thought it would go a certain way. You thought someone would be a certain thing, and then it didn't, and it led to all kinds of unpleasant feelings, sadness, anger, hurt, bitterness, maybe even rage. Let's think of a couple of quick examples now to drive home the point. Maybe after a long day of momming, a wife expects help with the kids when her husband comes home. But the husband, after a long day of work, is tired and goes directly to bed. The wife says to herself, he never wants to help me. How do you even know why I count on him anymore? She cries herself to sleep, feeling alone and overwhelmed, angry at the situation that she lives in. This is not the fairy tale she dreamed of as a little girl. Or maybe you've worked in your company now for 10 years. Uh, You have seniority in your department, and when it comes time for an advancement, someone younger, someone with less experience, someone with a degree that you don't have, gets the job instead of you. You say to yourself, I don't know why I even try. All of my efforts have been for nothing. And you leave work that day angry and frustrated and not sure if you will return tomorrow. Maybe it's your child or a loved one. They don't deserve the diagnosis that they have just received. This malady is for other people. It's not for my love. My heart. Their future is supposed to be bright. It's supposed to be full. It's supposed to be whatever they dream. Yet with this condition, how can they live a full life to their fullest potential? Or maybe it's you. You've come in here today frustrated and bitter 
You're not content with your life where it is or where it's headed. Decisions in your past have altered this course of life and not allowed you to be living the one you expected for yourself. And now you're fighting the what-ifs in your mind that do battle with your present contentment. Whatever it is, you're not alone. And this longing and frustration in your heart is not unique to you. You see, the Jewish people had that expectation as well. They were promised a king. And I don't know about you, but if a king is promised, I have some expectations in my mind already about what he should look like. The scriptures of old foretold of a king that was coming, a savior, a messiah. And they expected just that. They expected a king to deliver them from their troubles. A king who would restore prosperity and fortune to Jerusalem and the Jewish people. They expected God's hand to deliver swift punishment to their enemies and those who were oppressing them. And all you have to do is look at the scriptures to see where they got it from. The Old Testament is littered with promises of a king who restores God's kingdom. Let's go to Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. You know this from Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Move on to Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jeremiah adds in Chapter 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. You see, the expectation was for a king. A king in the line of the best king the Jewish people had ever had, King David. And can't you see why they would feel this way? Over and over throughout history, God had delivered his people from the hands of his enemies. This is who God is and this is what he does for his people. And when he comes, his people will be liberated from their bondage. And here comes their Savior now, riding into the city of Jerusalem. He's here. He's here. We're saved. Welcome to Palm Sunday. 
the day where Christians all over the world celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords into Jerusalem. Think about this. In a majority of churches around the globe today, Christians are hearing of the coming of Jesus, how he rode into Jerusalem, welcomed and praised, lauded and honored as a Savior who would come. But this didn't last long in reality because as he was only to be mocked, beaten, shamed, and crucified later that very week by the very same people. You see, the crowd expected a conquering king. And what they got was a prince of peace. They wanted him to deliver punishment upon their enemies, yet instead he would take upon himself the punishment for his enemies. And the truth is that we are just that fickle. We are the crowd. Make no mistake, we are just as that blind sometimes. We too shout Hosanna in the morning with expectation of deliverance for the day of head. And we curse him in the evening with our heads low when deliverance didn't come as we expected. We praise our deliverer who saves us from our mess, our suffering, and our pain. But we bemoan the suffering servant the one who says, pick up your cross and follow me just as I did. Therefore, as we travel through the passage this morning, I want to be dissecting my heart and yours with these two questions. What expectations do I put on Jesus? And what is my reaction when they go unmet? Can, can I be real right now? I, I place expectations on Jesus you're not alone. Throughout my Christian life, I've placed on him the expectation that he would make my walk easy with him, that he would give me favor in situations, that he would get me out of the messes that I have made. And honestly, it's left me feeling all the feels when Jesus submits to the will of the Father instead of my will. I've cried out, get me out of this, Jesus. Why am I lonely, Jesus? Why did they get that and, they, and I got this, Jesus? And here's the truth, and please write this down because this is going to be the line through which we are dissecting this scripture. To limit Jesus to my expectation of who he is and what he does is to truly miss the splendid glory of who he really is and what he has done. Does that make sense? Our expectations are myopic. They're, they're short-sighted. They are limiting. They are finite. While Jesus, he is all-knowing. And he is limitless. And he is eternal. To limit him limits your enjoyment of him. To limit him limits your understanding of the vastness and the riches of his grace. Thus we miss the splendid glory of who he is really. And what he does. So now let us turn to the text. Open up to Matthew chapter 21. We'll start at verse 1. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with her colt, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
Now, as this chapter begins, Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem. He has just come from Jericho where he healed two blind men, and now he's entering Bethphage, a city just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. During this week, Jesus will use this region of Bethany, Bethphage, and the Mount of Olives to retreat to, to rest, and to teach. But make no mistake, his eyes were on Jerusalem. In fact, if you think about it, his eyes were always on Jerusalem. Each step that he took in his life was one step closer to Jerusalem because it was Jerusalem where the mighty King David would reign. In his seat, it's been the seat of Jewish power for centuries. And it's from Jerusalem where the Messiah would reign. And Jesus knew that that expectation was upon him. And he knew the course of his life would be the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. And God the Father promised his children a king. One to rescue and one to protect. One to bring about prosperity and growth. One to reign as judge over the surrounding nations. Are you getting the picture in your head? Maybe, maybe like them, you're expecting a tall man. One who is firm in stature. One that commands respect. When he walks into a room, th- this type of man needs to show a little strength too. Maybe he's out in armor like a military hero or either in the finest robes like a king flowing behind him. And he would definitely need a ride, right? Like, like a war horse, large and, and imposing, something a normal man couldn't ride or dare to get on. Do, do you see the expectations now? They just swirl like a cyclone in our head, like a snowball getting bigger and bigger as it goes down the mountain. Election expectations are the invention of our minds and the collection of our heart's desire. But that doesn't make them right. It doesn't make them right. And it especially doesn't mean that Jesus should submit to our will. So as usual... Jesus takes a sledgehammer and destroys that expectation. Instead, he tells his two disciples to go into the village of Bethphage and retrieve a donkey and her colt. And already, we should be disappointed, right? Come on, Jesus. Don't you know that a king rides a valiant steed? Clearly, someone should have spoken to his PR manager because it's all about the statement, right? She wants us. Uh, hey, Jesus, we've polled um, all of Jerusalem, and the people would actually want someone who is uh, who strikes the the earth with the rod of his mouth to be riding on something something awesome, something big, something large, something imposing. Do you have any of those in your armada? But oh, the beauty! Oh, the beauty of our humble King as he rides a lowly and humble beast. The beauty of the will of God and the obedience of Jesus. Because why? It was not his time to ride the war horse. Though it's coming. Though it's coming. It was not his time to strike the earth with the rod of judgment. But we'll get there. No, it was time to make it to Jerusalem. And on the colt of a donkey, he rode in. Matthew wants you to see two things in this situation. Two things that may shatter some expectations that you might be holding on to right now. First, Jesus, the King of the universe, did ministry with nothing. With nothing. 
He, he doesn't have a home to lay his head. He doesn't have a boat to go across the sea. He doesn't have a refrigerator to keep food cold for the banquet. And he doesn't have a donkey to ride on for his coronation. You see, this will come up on the screen. Jesus' ministry was a dependent ministry. Can you say dependent ministry? Jesus, the one about the Bible says, through him all things were created, was utterly dependent on the provision of the Father for the ministry that he did. This should humble us this morning. This should turn our views of ministry and life on its head. Let's put it into context right now. Who in this room has ever said, my house just isn't big enough to host a community group? Come on. My paycheck just isn't big enough for me to tithe off of this month. My car isn't nice enough to give you a ride. My spare time isn't frequent enough for me to give it away to serving the church. The truth is we are so dependent on worldly treasure and comfort that we don't allow ourselves the freedom to do dependent ministry. Listen to this. Ministry that is dependent on the Lord is abounding in freedom. Jesus was free of worldly possessions, so he was able to give all that he had, even his life. He was free of the fear of man, so he could speak the truth in love. And his heart was free from the desires of the world, so he gave his life to the desires of the Father, even unto death. May, may we become more like our Lord this morning. The second thing Matthew wants us to see was the heart of the owner of the donkey and her colt. Now, the verse doesn't recall what was said, but I can just guess pretty easily since two unarmed, peaceable uh, disciples walked into the stable and left with the donkey that he was cool with it. I just know how my heart uh, protects my possessions, right? And I know how I would have likely been not cool with it. Okay. This scene may have looked like this. Hey, David, uh, the Lord needs your truck. Not today, you don't. <laughs> um, do, does the Lord have insurance to cover any accidental damages? Um, when will I get it back? And most importantly, will I get it back on full? That's just my heart. That's not yours. That's mine. Uh, so I say this to say it seems like the owner of the animals was willing to give them away to the ministry of the Lord. This is called faithful stewardship. Faithful stewardship is submitting to God's will all that he has given to us. Think, think about it this way. I, I brought nothing into the world, yet God created all things. If he created all things, then he owns all things. If I have not created all things, but rather obtained them, either through his direct blessing or indirectly giving me the giftings or the time to earn these things, then, then, then all belongs to him. All my possessions are his and therefore subject to his will. Now, now, there's only one thing that gets in the way of this logic. Can you guess what it is? Me. I get in my own way. I too often say, I earned it. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to do with it. Even if it means simply hoarding it to make me feel safe or make me feel comfortable. But faithful stewardship is a heart where a Christian submits all of our earthly possessions to the Lord. The owner of the donkey gave away his animals to serve the Lord and he freely gave. What is it that you are unwilling to give to the service of the Lord? Is it a tithe? Would actually giving a tenth of your income be more than you're willing to give to the Lord? What about, what, what if it's, uh, the Spirit is pressing your heart for more? What is that more? 
What if the Spirit is pressing your heart uh, to, to give of your time? What about of your car? What, what would you say if He is asking for your home to downsize so that you have more disposable income in which to serve the church or either time where you're trying to earn that income to serve the church? What are you unwilling to give to the Lord? The answer to that question may be very telling about where your treasure lies and who your master is. As servants of the risen King, we must not think of anything in our life as above sacrificing to the Lord in its service. Let's move on. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. Matthew here is quoting Zechariah 9.9. I appreciated that in our call to worship this morning. It says, Behold, your king is coming. By including this quote, Matthew is backing up the claim that Jesus is that coming king. Look at the similarity here. Jesus is humble. He is a man of no means from a nowhere town with no retirement and no earthly treasures, no home to retire to, no security for tomorrow's difficulties. He doesn't look like a king. He is not adorned in purple guard, nor is he riding a war horse for all to see his power and might. No, his dependent ministry allows him to be humble and submissive to God the Father. Jesus is humble, and he will enter the city of Jerusalem sitting on the young donkey, the colt of a donkey, of a beast of burden, a humble Christ riding on a humble animal, humbly fulfilling the promises of the Father. Yet this prophecy in Zechariah was a harsh declaration of judgment and destructions for the enemies of Israel. Let's go on off the pride, but we'll move on to verses 6 and 7 in Zechariah where it says, And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will remove the blood from their mouths and the abominations from their teeth, and they too will become a remnant for our God. You see, this is harsh punishment for those who have provoked God. Israel would have read this and said, at last, at last, one day vengeance will be delivered by God upon the hands of our enemies. He will send us a mighty king. While also saying that this king would come to deliver this salvation, riding on that donkey colt, that sign of the Messiah. Matthew is quick to to point this out, quick to say, see, see, I told you this is him, the Messiah. Look, this is precisely what God promised. And Jesus, with his eyes fixed on Jerusalem, rides the colt in the city who will receive him as the coming king, then reject him as a nobody just one week later. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put him on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut palm branches and spread them on the road of people. So let Jesus for a while now from town to town, everywhere Jesus went, people were following him, asking him for healing, for wisdom, for food. In fact, much of his ministry has involved mobs of people. They were either clamoring over Jesus Uh, the healer, or probing Jesus the prophet with questions of the Jewish law, or even trying to kill Jesus as the blasphemer. See all these expectations that the mobs have been placing on Jesus. There wasn't much rest and there was not much solitude. Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? What happened right before that? 
Jesus and his disciples had just come back together from ministering apart and that they were tired, all of them, including Jesus. His body had grown weary from constant ministry and his desire to rest. So he and his disciples sailed across the, the Sea of Galilee. And the Crane City's story is by the time they got to the other side, all of these peoples from the surrounding cities had followed him on the landmass to where he landed. A mob of people, again, as he comes out of that boat, placing their expectations on him. Heal us, explain the law to us, and feed us. So Jesus looks down this road as he enters the, enters the city again, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are looking back at him. And they weren't just waving, but they were laying down their cloaks on his donkey to, to, for his donkey to walk over them. And others were laying down branches of palm trees. They were covering or paving the, the road for Jesus, much like we would roll out the red carpet for a celebrity in our day. This would often be done in this society for a, for a returning war hero for a returning war here with great expectation of what he has accomplished on the battlefield. And much like this, today it was being done because there was great that he would be their king, their rescuations that Jesus would do. Much expectation that he would be their king, their rescuer, their victor, and they were desperate for it. And he knew what he was doing, right? He knew that the road straight through the crowd of well-wishers led straight to the cross. He knew that the donkey colt that he rode on was a sign to them that they would not understand. He knew that they didn't have a category in their mind for a prince of peace, let alone a, a king that rode on a humble uh, beast of burden. We can look back today and see just how uninformed they were, but new, to be honest, they didn't know. They didn't have a New Testament to refer to, number one. And they didn't have a paradigm for the rule and reign of a dead and resurrected king. They, 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 they had had David and he was mighty and he accomplished so much. But what happened? He died. And then another king, King Solomon, took over. And then he died, and then another king, and then another king, and then another king. So to, to, to imagine that this king would die was unfathomable to, to the people. God's hand of justice. So we can't forget that these people were waiting for the Messiah, their deliverer, God's hand of judgment onto their enemies and oppressors. These crowds were waving their branches at the coming earthly Savior. And what does that mean? It means that the Jewish nation wanted to be free. Free from Roman occupation. Free to worship and live and observe their normal lives outside of the thumb of an occupying force. And this had been the story of Israel. Whether it was Egypt or Babylon, Assyria or Rome, Israel had been under the thumb of oppressing empires for their, life, their lifetime. And, and the theme of the story each time would be that God would save His people. Saved His children. God would save them. God would pour out plagues upon the head of a nation that enslaved his children. God would raise up a judge to protect his people from the surrounding nations. God would raise up a king to lead his children and protect them. God brought them out of captivity and out of bondage. And always God was pointing forward to the Messiah who would come and rescue his people ultimately. 
And that's what the crowd expected, and that's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah, but they were disappointed with what they got. Their expectations went unmet. And how do I know this? If you read further in each gospel account, the same crowd that waved palm branches as he came into the city would turn and spit on him as he walked towards the cross. The same people who laid their cloaks on the road for the donkey would slap his face as he carried his own cross to Golgotha. They were given a Messiah. They were given a king who would provide everlasting life and they traded him over to the very power that was oppressing them. But they didn't see it and they couldn't. Ask yourself this question. What expectations do I put on Jesus? And what is my reaction when they are unmet? Our heart is fickle when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. We love the Jesus that makes it rain high on the mountaintop yet we question and murmur at the Jesus that carries us through the valley. Do you notice that you're never mad at Jesus when things are going your way? You never question His gifts when He pours them out on you. I never question His love for me when things are looking up for me, but my heart is so fickle, and I'm always quick to question that same love when my life doesn't look like I think it should. I'm quick to wave palm branches when Jesus is my victory. And I'm quick to spit in his face when he allows me to fail. What about you? So we see the picture of the crowd ahead of Jesus. And listen to what they were shouting. This is so important. Verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. At this point, we can see that the crowd was both in front of Jesus and behind him. He was surrounded. Now put yourself in that situation. Maybe you have been there. You're in the middle and and all people were placing their expectations on you, shouting with their voice or insinuating with their actions. Maybe you know the weight of taking on others' expectations, right? That burden can be crippling. So from front, we're in the back in all sides. The crowd is chanting at Jesus. And if you've never been to a sports game or or a concert, chanting is loud and contagious. And a small voice can grow to a multitude. The Jewish crowd before Jesus was large and surrounding him. And they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118. Let's read it. Oh Lord, save us, we pray. We beseech you, O Lord, cause us to prosper. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. And I want to point this out. Leave this on the screen. I want to point it out so that you see the striking similarity. Save us is two words in Hebrew. Hosea and na. Hosea, na. It's actually, it transliterated in the New Testament here for, to say Hosanna. So they're saying, O Adonai, Hosea, Nah, which means, Lord, save us now. The crowd was chanting, Save us now, O Son of David, King in the line of the mighty King David. Blessed is the hope of the Jewish nation that comes in the name of the Lord. We see the crowds, and now we hear their voice, and it's easy to think that they're crying out in unison and that they get it. That they understand, listening to their fervor, thousands of voices crying out. We read this and think their eyes have been opened to Jesus, who is the descendant of David, who comes in the name of God because He is God. 
we think they get it. They get that Jesus is not on a noble steed, but rather on a humble donkey, coming not to crush the Roman Empire, but to conquer Satan's sin and death. But if we think that, we are wrong. We, we think they understand that Jesus was bigger than the rebellion they des- d- desired, bigger than the rescue that they sought, and He would establish a bigger kingdom than they could imagine, but no. You see, this cry, Hosanna, save us now, was a nationalistic cry for salvation. It was a cry for Jesus to save the Jewish nation and a cry for Him to be their temporal Savior to crush the Roman Empire Lesson them freedom here on earth. And honestly, it was a cry to make Jesus less than he was. You see, when we insist that Jesus conform to our expectations, we are totally missing the work that he's come to accomplish. The work that Jesus had to do in Jerusalem was far greater than delivering Israel from the rule of Rome. There's a greater cause. There's a greater enemy that must be defeated. If if the crowd had gotten their way, you would not be sitting here today. We would not be gathered worshiping our King and our Savior here in this building if they had gotten their way. And the hope of world would not be alive right now sitting at the right hand of the Father this morning because Jesus died for you. He rode into the city as had been promised by the Father. And instead of conquering His enemies, when He died, He took the wrath and the punishment intended for His enemies, the enemies of God, onto Himself, substituting substituting Himself in their place, and, and your place, for their sins, and for yours. When we cry out, Jesus Christ, our King, for salvation, Hosanna, save us now. We mean so much more. And so did he. Do you see our expectations and our heart's desires for who Jesus is and what he does are too small. And often they're centered upon ourselves. Israel was longing for their salvation, not yours. They wanted to have a king, not one for you. But as Jesus rose from the grave on that Easter morning and He ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand, He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And He delivered salvation in a way no military warrior or valiant steed could have ever done. He gave a glimpse into the vastness of the plan for the whole world. Jesus, bless Him, the Jews expected too little from Him, and so do we. These crowds only wanted Jesus and His blessings. And so do we oftentimes. Blessed is our Savior and King who has an infinitely more grand plan for the blessings of His children than those of our myopic expectations. Let's finish up with 10 and 11. And, And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What's clear from the last two verses is that Jesus had entered into a powder keg. What was coming in the next seven days would be the biggest case of unmet expectations in history. Lord record, or Luke records today, Jesus is saying after entering the city, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
They wanted their king to come and, to, and for their will to be done. They wanted the hope of mankind to be the Jewish nation. And this fire, the, and this fire was beginning to spread through all of Jerusalem. And as it spread and as it grew, their eyes would begin to be open, not to who Jesus was and what he was doing, not that he was being obedient to the will of the Father and that what was perfect and included salvation for the Jews and Gentiles alike. No, what would be revealed throughout the following week is that Jesus would not live up to their expectations of their Messiah. He would not live up to their expectations of a king. They rejected him. And the penalty for their unmet expectations was death. And what shows more and more in this scene is that God will work for our good and his glory despite your expectations. Despite your expectations. Praise God. You see, the Father knew what he was doing when he sent Jesus to Jerusalem. He knew what he was doing as his son was spit and beaten and rejected He knew what he was doing when Jesus hung on the cross. And he knew what he was doing when he removed him from the grave. God will work for his glory and that is for our good that he does. And when he does, the only one who suffers because of unmet expectations is you and me. It's the same in church. It's the same in marriage. It's the same at your work. When unmet expectations are not clearly reasoned through or clearly communicated, only heartache and bitterness will grow. And again, if not communicated, the only one that is affected is you. Don't reject Jesus just because you don't know what he's doing right now in your life. Don't murmur about your situation because you don't see him working the valley. Maybe because he is carrying you through it right now. He's carrying you through the valley. And don't harbor bitterness between you and a brother or sister in this room. Matthew 18 speaks clearly to that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault because you and him, uh, between you and him alone, if he listens, you have gained a brother. We, we must be willing to love God's family enough as to resolve conflicts and work through our unmet expectations with the people in this room as well. Okay. GCC, the world is asking you as well, who is this? They, they want to know why the fuss over Jesus. What are we called to do? It, what we are called to do is to show them through the Scripture and by our life that Jesus is far beyond any expectations they could ever have. And I'm reminding all of us here right now, He is far beyond any expectations that we could ever have as well. And he will return. Talk about a triumphal entry. The scripture says that on his return, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now that's going to be a loud chant. That Jesus Christ is Lord and he won't be riding on a donkey this time. This time he will be on the war horse coming from the clouds at the blast of the trumpets. And he will be heard from all around the world. Now that's an entrance. And he will get down to exacting his judgment upon the enemies of God. He will usher in his reign and set up an everlasting kingdom, larger and greater, a new heaven and a new earth. And that will be a day of shattered expectations. That will be a day of rejoicing. That will be a day when our King, Jesus, will return. Blessed is our King who comes. I don't want to leave now 
and leave you in that state of unmet expectations. I don't want to leave us here wondering what, what to do with these murmurings of our heart. I, I do want, I have two uh, points of application, and I, I do want you to chew on them during our response time and chew on them as you go forward into this week, examining your heart. Listen to number one, honestly assess the expectations of your heart. Honestly assess, take, take a look, ask the Holy Spirit to, to divide out, to take out the callousness, to take out the deadness, so you can look at the raw expectations of your heart. Because we place them on Jesus, yes, but we also place them on our loved ones around us. We place them on our work, on our marriage. And what do they do? They kill us. They smother us. They hurt us. Are you focused on yourself? Are, are your expectations myopic? Like, like the Jewish nation who only wanted a Savior to save them in that point of history, not a Savior of the world. Are they only focused on yourselves? And, and, and are they debilitating to others? Because your expectations have weight. The expectations you place on a friend to be more than they can be, on a husband to be a Savior, on a wife to be like the Holy Spirit, these expectations have weight and they can smother. And what's your response, your honest response when they go unmet? Do we have a tantrum like a child? Do, do we throw ourselves on the ground? Do we, do we lash out in rage when your spouse or your friend or your coworkers don't meet your expectations? Honestly assess them and take them to the cross. Last, continuously ask yourselves, what expectations are, am I placing on Jesus and what are my reactions when they are unmet? Jesus proves time and time again that he will submit to the will of the Father, not yours. Stop expecting him to submit to yours. Stop laying up your plans before them, before him and saying, nope, it's good. Don't need to pass it by anybody else. Just go ahead and do this and then get upset when God doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't submit to your will. He, he submits to the Father. It's not because you are not important. Hear that. Jesus not submitting to your will is not because you are not important, but Jesus has better plans for you, plans to prosper you and grow you, plans for a hope in a future. You might not see it now, but Jesus has better plans for you than you could ever imagine. Therefore, when your plan doesn't work out or when mountains are not moved in your favor, pray for joy, pray for peace, and pray for trusting that your God has better in store for you. Summarize that this way. Submit your hopes and desires to his will. Okay? My hopes, my desires, my expectations submitted to the Lord's will. We place them in his hands, not the other way around. I'm praying this morning for someone's eyes to be opened to the great, great love that the Lord has for you. The grace that he poured out on you as the savior of mankind. And I'm praying that we would identify the areas that we are harboring bitterness in our hearts for our unmet expectations and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Let them go this morning. Let them go. Set them before the cross of Christ this morning and enjoy him for who he is and what he's done. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray now for your spirit to take these feeble words and, and, and do work with them. Father, I pray for Gospel Community Church that we would be a people that submit our expectations, submit our desires, submit our hearts to your will, knowing and trusting that you will provide, that you will save, that you will take care of us, that you will save us. Help us to trust like what we have in our hearts. But may we be a people who know your heart, and in knowing it, we place our undying faith in you. Father, do work in our hearts this morning. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.